What does it mean to be exalted? At its core, it means a high or an elevated status. In fact, Jesus told a parable about going to a feast. And when you go to a feast, a fancy banquet, don't go take the seat of honor because if somebody more important than you comes in, you may be humbled by being asked to get out of that seat and go sit at a lowly seat. She said, no, you should take the lowly seat so that when the time comes, it would be appropriate that somebody would say, no, friend, what are you doing in that lowly seat? You need to come and sit in this place of honor. Today, we're going to see how God is exalted through the judgments of the first four trumpets. And so I've titled today's sermon, Exalted, and we're in Revelation 8, 7 through 13. So if you remember, in Revelation 8, verses 1 through 6, the seventh seal was open. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour, and the host of heaven took this deep breath before the throne of God as the seal judgments had ended and the trumpet judgments were about to begin. So the first four trumpets, which we'll look at today, they're grouped together in much of the same way that the first four seal judgments were grouped together. And they also contain many connections to the plagues in Exodus. And we'll see that as we continue through Revelation. There are many connections between the book of Revelation and the book of Exodus. So Revelation 8-7, let's pick up there where we left off last time we were in Revelation. We'll be finishing chapter 8 today. Verse 7 reads, The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. And they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. Now, what we know in Scripture is that when you see hail and fire and blood, especially these together, these are symbols of divine judgment. In fact, in the book of Joel, the book of Joel has many prophecies. In, in such a short book, there are many prophecies about a coming day of the Lord. And just one of the verses that pictures this, Joel 2.30, listen to this, it reads, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. This was again in the context of the coming day of the Lord. But this first trumpet that sounds also reminds us again of the seventh plague in Egypt. Now, what I want to do is I want to read an extended section about the seventh plague in Egypt from Exodus 9. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus 9, beginning at verse 13, and we're going to read through verse 29. It'll also be on the screen. But the reason I want to read this is a little bit larger section than I would normally read, because I think if we understand this passage and we really have this, then it will help us to understand Revelation 8. So really pay attention to this passage in Exodus that I'm about to read, Exodus 9, verses 13 through 29. And you'll see there's something that's repeated in this passage at least three times. Here we go. Exodus chapter, uh, excuse me, 9, beginning at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Hold on to that thought. Now if I had stretched up my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you had have been cut off from the earth. 
But indeed, for this purpose, I've raised you up that I may show my power in you. God's saying, I could have completely done away with you if I wanted to, but I have a purpose even in your judgment. That I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth as yet you exalt yourself against my people and that you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause very heavy, what? Hail to rain down such as has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Therefore, send now and gather your livestock that you have in the field for the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home and they shall die. He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. But he who did not regard, he did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the heaven that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and what? Fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mixed, mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Verse 26. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. And the Lord sent and called Excuse me, and Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I've sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and my people and I are wicked. Treat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thunderings and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. So Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. There will be no more hail, that you may know that the earth, what, is the Lord's. Did you pick up on the refrain that's found three times in this passage? Look at the end of verse 14. God says, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Look at the end of verse 16. God says, that my name may be declared in all the earth. Finally, look at the end of verse 21. Moses says, that you may know that the earth is who? Is the Lord's. So this gives us a clue into part of God's purpose in sending the plagues upon Egypt, but it also gives us a clue into what God is doing in the plagues in Revelation. In Egypt, Pharaoh ruled over all. In fact, there were many gods in Egypt, but Pharaoh was seen as a son of the gods and as a living deity. So he had absolute power in his kingdom. The Egyptians also worshiped many false gods. So these are the ones that they thought were in control, Pharaoh and these false gods. And they had gods of the Nile, gods of the sun, of the moon, of the harvest, of fertility, of all of these things. They had gods for them. So those were the ones that they believed had power over these things. So what happens is when God sends these plagues on Egypt, they're not just plagues. They're actually judgments against Pharaoh and against each of the gods of Egypt that that plague was coming against. So, for instance, when God said there's going to be darkness, well, guess what that 
plague was also against the power of Pharaoh himself and the sun god Ra. Because when the Lord God Almighty said there would be darkness, then nothing the Egyptians or Pharaoh or their gods could do would thwart what God had decreed. And so part of his judgments were showing that he alone is the one true living God. And that's part of what is happening in the book of Revelation as well. So looking again at this refrain found in Exodus, we understand these judgments were part of God exalting himself as the one true God. And we understand that this parallels with the book of Revelation. So going back to Revelation chapter 8, if God decides to fire, uh, to send hail mixed with fire and blood to the earth, guess what? He can do that. If he purposes to kill off a third uh, of the trees and all the grass, guess what? He can do that because he's God and this is his creation. It only exists because he has deemed it to be so. He rules over all of his creation. And when he purposes something for his creation, nobody can thwart what he's purposed. Nobody can stop it. Nobody can go against the God who rules over all. His purposes will stand. And that brings us to our main point today. We have one main point that we're going to see played out through a passage. And that is this. God will be exalted. And he is exalted as the one true God. And sometimes he uses judgment to do so. Now, that doesn't seem like a very lighthearted message, right? But as you're preaching through the Bible and you preach through Revelation, you'll see today that that is very much the theme of this message, that one way or the other, God is going to be exalted as the one true living God. And if it has to be through your judgment or your discipline, well, that's what it will be. But either way, he is going to be exalted as the one true living God. I remember when I was a kid, I used to like to climb things that were really high up. I used to like to um, find trees that were as high as, you know, I could climb. And then I'd like to also jump down from great heights. So I'd climb up the tree, and then, you know, that'd be fun. I'd hang up in the tree for a while, and then I'd start climbing down. And I'd get to that point where I felt like I could jump from a branch without really hurting myself. And just had that moment of free fall that was fun as a kid. But sometimes I didn't either gauge the height very well or I overestimated my ability, whatever it was. And I would jump from a little too high up and my knees would slam into my chest when I hit the ground and the bottom of my feet would sting from slapping the ground. Y'all ever done that? Now, when I jumped from a little too high up and I got hurt, did I say, gravity why did you hurt me that time? You really let me down. Pun intended. Did I say that to gravity? Some of you will get that later on or your spouse can explain it to you. It's okay. Uh, Lord bless you. So did I get mad at gravity for me getting hurt when I jumped that high up? No. Why would I not get mad at gravity for getting hurt when I jump from too high up. Because it would be foolish. I understand that gravity is a law of nature that is set. It is constant. So it's a law that I have a responsibility to understand and to respect and to live within that boundaries. So if I break that boundary, if I break that law, it is not the law being mean. It is me suffering the consequences of breaking the law. The same is true with God. The same is true with his word. 
God is constant. His word is fixed. He never changes. And guess what? No matter what the world wants to tell you, his word is unbreakable. God created man and woman. And if you want to try to choose your gender, you are breaking God's word. And that is why in that community, the suicide rates are higher than the rest because you are breaking God's word and you're miserable doing it. If you want to say, well, let's just get together and see how cohabitation works before we get married. Did you know that people that live together before they get married have a higher divorce rate than those that don't? Because you can try to break God's word and his law all that you want, but it remains unbroken. You are broken over God's word. God's not being mean. He is being holy and his word is fixed. And we can think that we're breaking it, but we're the ones that get broken because God's word is eternal. And there is a difference here between those who believe in Jesus and those who don't yet believe in Jesus because as we put our faith in Jesus, we're not under the wrath of God anymore. We've, we've passed from, from death to life, but God will discipline his children. And so whether it is in the judgment of the world or is it in the discipline of his children, God is going to be exalted. So then we have a choice. Do you want to keep get, giving God glory through those licks that he gives you or in the ability that he has to bless you because of your obedience? I remember in, when I was in high school, um, the coaches could still give us licks with the paddle. And man, I got a lot of licks, all right? And uh, the coaches would just, man, anything. The teacher just said, well, hey, he looked at me wrong today. They'd be like, all right. I mean, they, coaches were a little too excited about that, in my opinion. And uh, I remember one time, my friends and I, my kids and I were just talking about this because I don't know how this came up. I was like, I am not the example of this story, okay? I'm the example of how to do wrong in this story. So don't look up to me in this. But my friends and I were shooting spitballs in a classroom. We had gotten straws and we were shooting spitballs. We thought we were getting away with it. And two of my friends, excuse me, two of us, one of my friends and I went to shoot a spitball, threw a straw, a little wadded up paper. We had gotten wet at somebody else. And they moved right when we shot it. And guess who was behind that person? The teacher. And guess who he was? He was about a 250-pound football coach. And guess what happened? We got marched right to the principal's office, and he did a full wind-up on us. And I remember while we're waiting, I get my licks first, and I remember laying in the hallway just numb, and it hurt so bad I'm laughing from the pain. If you've ever been there, I'm like, I can't feel anything. You know, I'm laying there, and he comes out, and... This girl that we know comes walking down the hall. We're laying on the ground, like laugh crying. We're just like, just go on. Leave us alone. But you know what? Was he being mean? Well, kind of, maybe. He was. God's not like that. God's discipline of us is always appropriate. It is always what we need. It is always in our best interest. It is always good. But there is still that principle that God's law is fixed, the expectation is there, and, and we can think we're getting away with it, and we can think that, well, the world's getting away with it, the world's breaking it, I'm going to go along with the world. They're not getting away with it. God will always have the last say. It's God's word that is unbreakable. Remember, I 
Um, I remember hearing a story about a young girl uh, whose parents told her that she could not have a cat because she had a very severe allergy to them. But she desperately wanted a cat, this young girl. And one day she found a kitten, a stray kitten in her neighborhood. And so quickly she picked it up, ran to a far corner in the, the backyard, and a secret place that she had where she would play with some of her friends. And she put this kitten in a box that she had where she kept some of her toys. She went inside the house, real discreetly got some milk and a blanket, came back out, made a little home for that kitten in the corner of the yard. And her parents said, you can't have a cat, you can't have a cat. No matter how bad you want it, you can't have it because you're allergic to cats. But she had the cat. She finally had her kitten. She finally had what she wanted. But then she noticed that she couldn't breathe very well. She noticed that her skin was really itchy and she was even getting a little dizzy. So she went inside to tell her mom, I don't feel very well. But before she could even get the words out, her mom went into a panic, scooped her up. They rushed her to the hospital. She was having a severe allergic reaction. And once she got to the hospital and got the medicine that she needed and everything calmed down, her mom asked her, we told you that, that you're allergic to cats. You know, have you been around a cat? Has there, has there been anything else that you've been around that you can think of that would cause this? And she said, well, let me tell you. And the little girl came clean. And she told her mom about the kitten she had found that she had hidden in the yard. And the, the mom said, you know that you're allergic to cats. We've told you this. Why would you do that anyways? And the little girl simply responded, I just thought you said that because you didn't want me to have fun. See, that's the essence of sin. Do you realize you have an enemy that wants you to believe that God's trying to keep you from things? Do you, do you understand that the world wants to tempt you with the shiny apple that looks good on the outside but is rotten to the core on the inside? Do you not understand that you live in a spiritual warfare and your enemy does not play fair and he wants you to doubt the goodness of your father. He wants you to doubt that God will supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. He wants you, your enemy wants you to destroy yourself by doubting the goodness of your father. The essence of sin is that doubt, that we doubt God's goodness, and so we rebel against him. We go to get our own, what we think we need, what we think God is keeping us from. But here's the thing. God's holiness is fixed, his word is fixed, and God will be exalted in the life of his children, whether it is through your disobedience or through your blessing. But either way, God is going to receive glory in your life. With that in mind, let's look at the remainder of our passage. That was just one verse. We need to move on. Verse 8. Uh, verse 8. We'll move through the, the rest a lot quicker. That's fine. Your, your roast won't burn. Don't want you to get nervous. Verse 8. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day 
did not shine, and likewise the night. And then I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So with the sounding of the second trumpet, a third of the sea becomes blood. Sea life died. And then what? The ships are destroyed. So again, this reminds us of another plague. In fact, the first plague back in Egypt in Exodus 7. Once again, God's going to be exalted. Sometimes he's exalted in judgment. Listen to Exodus 7, 17, just this one verse. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. So what did the first part of that, first part of that verse say? By this you shall know I'm the Lord. In other words, you're going to know I'm in control one way or the other. At this point, God had not um, hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh had a choice, and he could respond to God's word, or he could rebel against God. He could positively respond and obey, or he could choose to continue to go his own way. But either way, God was going to be exalted. So back to Revelation 8, Revelation 10 through 11, the third trumpet sounds. And what happens? A A third of the rivers and the springs become bitter. So notice with the first three trumpets, the judgments come directly from heaven. And the third trumpet, uh, we just read about, a great star falls. The name of that star is Wormwood. And there's a lot of imagery in the book of Revelation that we have to have some basic understanding of the Old Testament to understand. And this Wormwood uh, concept, this symbol, and this bitterness, again, comes from the Old Testament. Uh, as I was reading up on that, Warren Wearsby, he provided a great summary. I just thought, well, let me just read this brief summary because this, this says it better than I could. But he says the word translated wormwood gives us our English word absinthe, which is a popular liquor in some countries in the world. The word means undrinkable. And in the Old Testament, it was synonymous with sorrow and great calamity. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, often used it, as did Amos. Um, And Moses warned that idolatry would bring sorrow to Israel. Isn't that interesting? A root producing wormwood. That idolatry would become bitter, a root producing wormwood. Solomon warned that immorality might seem pleasant, but in the end it produces bitterness like wormwood. So again, this wormwood is used to understand that, look, sin may seem pleasurable, but there is a bitterness that is coming with it. There is a judgment that is coming with it. In Exodus 15, right after the children of Israel left Egypt, they come to the Red Sea. They're trapped in between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. And what did God do? He split the Red Sea, right? So they walk through on dry ground. This is so ironic to me. Right as they come through on dry ground and they, they go to the wilderness, they're in the wilderness and now there's no water. So they go from a sea before them to now there's no water. And what did they do immediately? They began to complain. We don't have anything to drink. We should have just stayed in Egypt. I can't believe Moses would lead us out here to die. Now God had just split the sea for them. And they're immediately doubting his ability to provide water for them. And there was a 
their stream there that they came to, there was a place they came to called Mara, and it means bitterness. And the water there was undrinkable. So they're going through the wilderness. They don't have anything to drink. They finally come to a place. looks like it might have water, but the water's bitter. It's undrinkable. So God tells Moses, take a tree. It was a tree that God showed Moses and throw it into the water. And when he did, guess what happened? The water became sweet. Now, I know that's how y'all all purify your water at home. You just go cut a branch off and throw it in the water. The, the, the tree wasn't the purpose, the purpose was to teach God's people that God can provide for them in his way, in his time. And so the bitter waters were made sweet. But you know what happened just a little bit later? They come to Mount Sinai, and the people can't even wait for Moses to come down with the tablets that God's giving them, the law that God is giving them. They're like, well, we can't wait anymore for Moses. He's been up there meeting with God, and, you know, it's just too long. We need to figure out something else. So they take their jewelry that they had been given when they plundered the Egyptians that God gave them. They gave it to Aaron, who's supposed to be the high priest for God, and he makes them a golden calf that they then bow down and worship. Moses comes down, he sees this, he takes the Ten Commandments, the first set, he throws them down. He takes the golden calf, he burns it in fire till it's ash. He throws the ashes into the nearby water there, and then he makes the people drink that bitter water. Again, here's the picture. Whether it is God turning the bitter water sweet and blessing you, or whether it is in your disobedience and bitterness, God is going to be exalted one way or the other. At some point, we have to reconcile with the pride in our heart that there is a God, I am not him, and he always has the last say. And so I either surrender to him through Jesus Christ, understanding that he loves me, and he is gracious, and he is merciful, and he is a good king, and he is worthy of me laying my life down before, and I either surrender all that I am to him, and I know him in that surrender, or I will know him in judgment. But one way or the other, he is going to be exalted. Let's look at our remaining verses today. Revelation 8.12 reads this. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. How does all that happen? I don't know, but God can do whatever he wants, so apparently this is what he's going to do at some point in the future. But I know that it's going to happen because he's declared it. And as this fourth trumpet sounds, there's darkness that comes in. And again, there's a repetition here of one-third that we see through the trumpets. But there also is a parallel with the plagues in Egypt. Once again, the ninth plague in Egypt was a darkness that could be felt. It was so dark that they could feel it. It was the judgment of God. But again, it was against the it was against Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. It was where God was saying, I am the one true living God. And what I decree is what will stand. Even the mighty sun god Ra could not bring light to the Egyptians in their dwelling place. So with the fourth trumpet, what God decrees, it's going to stand. And if he decides a, a third of everything will go dark, then that's what's going to happen. And that brings us to our last verse today, Revelation 8, 13. And I looked, 
And I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So the first four trumpets have sounded. That's what we just looked at. And now a warning is given regarding the last three to come. The three remaining trumpets are also called the three woes. They're increasing in severity. And so in this sense, this is a warning. This verse is saying brace for impact. Kind of how the silence was before the first four trumpets. Now there's this kind of brace for impact. Whoa, 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 for the three trumpets are about to sound. Now that being said, God does not take pleasure in judging sinful men. The Bible says that God desires for all men to come to repentance. So God is not taking pleasure in judging the world. He gives us chance after chance to repent, to believe in Jesus. He gives us chance after chance to escape the wrath to come. It's been said that God's mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. We deserve God's wrath for our sin. In fact, it would be right, it would be just for God to condemn us to an eternity in hell because of our sin. It would be right for God to do that. If we don't like that, it really doesn't matter. Just like the law of gravity, that is an unbreakable law of God's holiness. It's just a rule of reality. Doesn't matter if we like it or not. But through Jesus, guess what? We find mercy. If we confess our sins and we believe upon Jesus who died for our sins, then God accepts the death of Christ on our behalf and forgives us. And so through Jesus Christ, we can receive the mercy of God. We can escape the wrath to come. But if mercy is not receiving what we do deserve, that's God's wrath, then grace can be understood as receiving what we could never earn. God's forgiveness, his love, the gift of his spirit, to be called by his name, the promise of heaven. We can never be good enough to earn what God freely gives through Jesus Christ, and that's grace. So today, the question really becomes, will we hear the message of God? Will we hear the unbreakable word of God? Will we turn from our way, casting ourselves before God through Jesus Christ, saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, I come to you. I believe in you. Extend the grace and the mercy of God to me today that I might be saved. For some of you here, you've never put your faith in Christ, and that's the decision before you today. Will you call upon Jesus to be saved? But many of you, you're already a believer. You're filled with God's Spirit. And so really, it comes down to a choice. You're filled with his spirit. You're called by his name. So then the choice becomes more of a, of a choice of obedience. God's going to be glorified in your life, child of God. It's either going to be in your discipline or in your obedience. But either way, he, he wins. He's going to have the last say. He's going to be exalted. And remember, you have an enemy that wants you to doubt the goodness of your heavenly Father. Because soon as you doubt God, then you will take things into your own hands. Then you will try to fulfill your own desires. Then you will go your own way. 
And that essence of sin is a rebellion against God. God, you are not providing what I need in this moment, so I'm going to do it on my own. And so for some of us today that are believers, maybe God is calling us to recognize those areas where we're just doubting his goodness to us. And to return to him as a gracious father. And say, Lord, forgive me for doubting your goodness in my life. I desire for you to be exalted in my obedience. Help me by your spirit and you watch. You watch as God fulfills his word in your life. Would you please stand with me? As we are bringing our service to a close, we have a concluding song. It's a song of response. It's not responding to me as a preacher or to a church. It's responding to God, responding to his word. We're singing his praises in light of what we've heard from his word. But it's also a time if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ for you to slip out from where you're sitting and to, to come down. And I would love to pray with you. I would love to talk with you more right here before you leave to know that you've put your faith in Christ to be saved. That you've not rejected God's word, but you've heard it. And responded by faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe before you leave today, you, a, a husband, a wife, maybe you need to come as a family. And just say, Lord, forgive us for how we've doubted your goodness. We've allowed the enemy to tell us lies and we believe those lies. We want to trust you to supply our every need according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Right now is a great time to do business with God before we leave here this morning. I'm going to pray, and as the Lord leads, you respond. Lord Jesus, we, we love you, and we thank you that you are good, that you love us, that you desire for us to repent, to know your goodness, your grace, your mercy in our lives. You want to bless us. You want us to know your goodness in every way. May we quit believing all the lies that cause us to settle for anything less. And we really turn to you with our whole heart, surrendering our whole lives to you with the eager anticipation and expectation of seeing you work and move in ways that we don't even fathom right now. We're by faith to trust you to do what you've promised to do. We pray that you would move and work as we respond in this moment, yes, but even as we leave this place and we respond in the days to come to you, to your work. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.